listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Let's open up in our Father's Word to Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 50. Luke 23, beginning in verse 50, Jesus is dead. Jesus is dead. In the gospel account, that is, at this particular time that we're going through the gospel of Luke, Jesus is dead. He's been crucified, hung on a cross. Now it comes the time to do with his body what you would do with somebody who's dead. And here it is in Luke 23, verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, meaning this Sanhedrin, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. So right out of the gate, we understand that there were some among the Sanhedrin, at least one, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a good and righteous man, didn't agree with the decision to put Jesus to death, to crucify Jesus, okay? Verse 52, this man went to Pilate, Pontius Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. This would have put Joseph of Arimathea at odds with the rest of the Sanhedrin. Joseph is the one who goes and takes Jesus off the cross and takes this particular action. So he would have been at odds with the other 69 members of the Sanhedrin. This is what faith looks like in action. It's very easy to talk about faith in such a removed way, such a nebulous, general way, that we can lose sight of what faith actually looks like. He was actually putting himself at risk in the crosshairs of tremendous peer pressure from the other members of the council. He was flying in the face, going against what the other 69, or at least the overwhelming majority of them, had decided to do by putting Jesus to death. So if you want to ask a question, what does faith look like? What does it look like for me to follow God? What does it look like for me to put my faith in Jesus Christ? Here's a great example. You will care more about the opinion of God and not be at all concerned about the opinion of people. The way things seem to have been reversed today. Political correctness in a very large sense has done a tremendous disservice to biblical faith. It's not possible to be faithful to God and to maintain popularity with people. If your ambition in life is to be popular with people, you will never be faithful with God. If you concern yourself with being faithful to God, you will be popular with the people you should be popular with. And the other people whose opinions don't matter just shouldn't matter. So it's very important for us as we're reading a passage of Scripture like this to not just zip right by, but to actually stop and meditate on what you're reading, to pay attention to what you're reading, and put yourself in the position of the characters who are portrayed in the Scriptures. Joseph of Arimathea was putting himself in the crosshairs 
putting himself at odds with direct peer pressure he would have received by the rest of the council, the Sanhedrin, for no other reason than he wanted to glorify God and take action by being merciful to the one who had been merciful, Jesus Christ. Verse 53, he took it down, the body of Jesus, wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. The commandment being the fourth commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, to keep the Sabbath, to honor the Sabbath, to not do any work on the Sabbath. So the women went home and prepared the spices, and then as we read the rest of the gospel account, they come back at a later time to finish what they had started so in accordance with the Sabbath, they're resting. They, they don't go and prepare the body any further. They don't do anything with the body. They're going to come back and do that. And that's what, and we look at the orchestration of God, led them to discover on the third day the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the Lord God in heaven actually perfectly working things out, orchestrating things so that even through their resting on the preparation day for the Sabbath and not doing anything on the Sabbath in regard to putting the spices on the body of Jesus, which was the custom, their need to come back after the Sabbath was over, God used that to create the witnesses to the fact that Jesus was no longer dead, that Jesus had been resurrected in fulfillment with his prophecy that he would be raised from the dead. So Jesus here, we get the understanding, we get the picture that this is not to be taken as allegory. There's tremendous detail that's being provided here. This is not symbolism that's being presented. There are customs and practices, the mentioning of the Sabbath, the reasoning why they didn't go and prepare the body because of the timing, because of the Sabbath. There's every indication that the literal sense makes sense, so everything else should be taken as nonsense. Jesus really was dead. How dead? So thoroughly dead that everyone recognized that his body needed to be prepared for burial. That's how dead Jesus was. Now let's look here for a second about something else that might zip right over our heads, go right past us if we're not careful. And it's wrapped up in this particular character here named Joseph of Arimathea. And perhaps you might identify with Joseph of Arimathea in one way or another. By the time we're done, you'll probably identify with him more than you at first realized. Look with me at verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. Again, historical accuracy and detail. A good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This is what I want us to zero in on. He was a good and a righteous man, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be a good and righteous man, and what does it mean to be looking for the kingdom of God? Because at the end of the day, you too are either a good 
and righteous person looking for the kingdom of God, or you're not, and you're no longer walking in a lifestyle of readiness looking for the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be a good and righteous man, someone looking for the kingdom of God? This is not the first time in Scripture that someone is called good and righteous. It's not the first time in Scripture that someone is looking for the kingdom of God. In fact, if we look earlier in Luke's gospel, if we look at Luke chapter 2 and in verse 25, we see that there was a particular man named Simeon. Simeon is the one who was there in the temple area. If we look at Luke chapter 2, Verse 25, it says, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, if you read the rest of the story, as we did so long ago, so it seems, Simeon held the baby Jesus and prophesied about the future of his ministry, about the implications of Jesus' teachings, his acts, his miraculous signs and wonders, all right? But here we understand that Simeon was righteous and devout, and again, waiting for the consolation of Israel. If we read a little bit further in that same chapter, we read about a prophetess named Anna. She was a widow, had been without a husband for many, many years, decades. She had been without a husband, but she had been, figuratively speaking, and practically married to the Lord in a practical sense. She was waiting for the fulfillment or the arrival of the kingdom of God. Now, look with me at the book of Job. It's not the book of Job, even in these days of massive unemployment. Don't let yourself be confused. It's not the book where you get a job. It's the book of Job. In Job chapter 1, verse 6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, now who's initiating the conversation here? God, not the devil. The devil doesn't initiate anything. He steals, kills, and destroys. Those are all reactive terms. If we look at John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. God is the great initiator. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Yet there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Now, there's the term that's used there, a blameless and upright man, and then it's qualified some more, who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face." The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And we see that calamity strikes Job's household. 
And then in chapter two, we read in verse one, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. So there again, we have the testimony from Almighty God that Job was a blameless and upright man. How many of us would love to have God provide that kind of testimony about our lives? How would you like to have God Almighty say, have you considered my servant, insert your name, blameless and upright, a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, who fears me, who respects me? The fear of God, another way to look at Fear of God, the understanding of the fear of God, is to have such a respect for God that everything in your life revolves around Him. Everything in your life revolves around Him. Everything in your life revolves around Him. That's what it means to fear God. So in Genesis chapter 6, we have yet another instance of another person who has a testimony or two about his own life. Look with me at Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the ark account, okay? Verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. That's another way of looking at what it means to be blameless and upright, a way to characterize what that looks like in the daily grind of life is that a blameless and upright person before God is somebody who walks with God. And so we have Job very clearly understood as being someone who's blameless and righteous, who fears God. We have Noah, it's very clear to understand that he is someone who received favor from God, that he was indeed a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and that he walked with God. Now turn with me to the Gospel of Luke in chapter one, because yet we have a couple, a man and a woman, who are also said to have this characteristic, this trait, that we've been talking about. In Luke chapter one, beginning in verse five, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. This is the father of John the Baptist, of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. So they're both from priestly lineage. And her name was Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. There it is again. Walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now there seems to be a fly in the ointment there, especially in today's false, heretical, 
recreated gospel, which is no gospel, the prosperity gospel, which teaches that if I follow God, then everything will come out peachy keen in the end. Everything will resolve in a beautiful way for me, myself, and I. That is not necessarily true. Job went through tremendous difficulty. Noah had quite a task put at his feet in regard to the building of the ark. And Zechariah and Elizabeth, it seems like we would expect if they're blameless before God, following all of the commandments, meaning the Old Testament, if they made it their ambition to follow the ways of God as revealed in the Old Testament, we would expect them to be blessed. And yet here we are reading about them being barren. That whole idea of being fruitful and multiplying to be married, one of the primary purposes of marriage is to come together and to have children, all right? And so in Old Testament times and in first century times, to not have children, some people would speculate erroneously, erroneously, that perhaps God had passed over the couple that was not capable of having children. Now we see in the story here of Luke's gospel that God always gets the last laugh. He who laughs last laughs best. And God outdid himself by not only answering the prayer of Zechariah when he's in the temple for the redemption of Israel, but also his personal prayer because the angel Gabriel says, God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth is going to conceive. And then Zechariah does what most of us do. God answers the prayer and we say, I don't believe you. <laughs> and that's why he's struck mute. He can't speak until the right time when God says he's capable of speaking. But there in the scriptures, we have an account of while things are working out, sometimes they don't seem to be working out the way we want them to work out. But God has a way of blessing and moving and bringing glory to his name that is higher than our ways, bigger than our ways, more significant than our ways. We should all be thankful that God many times does not answer our prayers the way we want him to answer them. We really should be thankful for that. So, there are many instances in your life, instances in my life, where we're still holding our breath, waiting for God to do something. He hasn't yet done it. Remember that God will get the last laugh. He who laughs last, laughs greatest. And in the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, there's a perfect example of a couple waiting for God, being blameless and righteous, and yet difficulty and hardship and scratching the head moments were right there in their life, and you've got to be very careful that you don't mistakenly think that if I follow God, there will be no difficulty, no hardship, no questionable moments in my life. No, actually, we've looked at it just briefly today. If you're going to be a blameless and righteous person, somebody who's waiting and watching for God to move, somebody who's aligning your life around the Lord himself, somebody who fears God, who respects him, and all of your life revolves around him, Job is a good example for us to remember that you will be in the crossroads. Noah is a great example that there is work to be done for the blameless and the righteous, for the upright. Zechariah and Elizabeth remind us 
that there are difficult times, head-scratching times, wringing of the hands times where you just don't know how things are going to work out. And yet, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen. Be very careful that you don't serve the Lord based on how comfortable or convenient you expect him to make your life. Righteous, blameless, upright, God-fearing, God-walking, walking with God people are not concerned about comfort and convenience. They're concerned about the glory and the mission of God being advanced. Okay? We understand that? And so the question that you should be asking that's legitimate to ask is, what does it mean to be a blameless and upright person? What does that actually mean? Does that mean to be without sin? Does that mean that a blameless and upright person is somebody who is without sin? No, that's not what that means at all. If that was the case, there would have never been a need for Jesus to come and to die on the cross as we've just been reading as Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus off the cross and laid him in that empty tomb, that tomb that had never been used before, which, by the way, is significant and important because even then, the idea is that Jesus' body was never defiled by being in the presence of a dead body. So even in that fact that Jesus was laid in an unused tomb, there's a wink or a nod if you're paying attention to the biblical account, that even Jesus' body, when he was dead, was preserved and kept from being, according to Jewish ceremonial law, kept from being defiled because he was not put into a tomb where there were other dead bodies. Now, that was a practice in Jewish times, in the first century and before. If somebody died you would take that body and you would put it into another tomb. And oftentimes there were other bodies in that tomb in various stages of decay. But according to Jewish burial customs, according to, and according to Jewish law, you would not want to touch any of those bodies or even be near any of those bodies. And so there's a significance in the fact that Jesus' body is laid in an unused tube, that even then, even after his death, his body is preserved from any type of defilement whatsoever. Does that make sense? Because there could have been a case made after the resurrection if Jesus had been laid in a used tomb where there were other bodies, there could have been a claim made that he was then defiled because of his exposure to them. I know it might sound ridiculous to us, but God taking all of the possible arguments, taking all of the capability to refute the sinless, spotless, flawless identity of Jesus, just taking all of that right out of the equation. So there's no possibility to debate that at all. So we know that the idea of being blameless and righteous is defined in multiple ways. We've already seen that. Walking with God, Noah, walked with God. Job, feared God. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they kept all of the commandments of God. They knew their Old Testament and they consciously, purposely had all of their life revolve around God by putting the word of God into action, all right? And then we see here in Luke chapter 23 how it's defined in the case of Joseph of Arimathea. 
In verse 50, he was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God, and we saw it in the life of Simeon as well who was waiting for the consolation or the culmination of Israel for God's kingdom agenda to take its quantum leap forward, in particular, as it related to the arrival of the anointed one, the appointed one, the Messiah. We use the word Christ. The Jews, even to this day, use the word Messiah. So in all of these instances, we see The definition, we see an explanation of what does it mean to be blameless and righteous. It does not mean to be without sin. It means that as far as it's possible, humanly speaking, your life is revolving around God. Your life is revolving around God. Now, there is not a church on this earth that doesn't at some point, if it's worth its salt, talk about making disciples about discipleship. That's a buzzword. Discipleship is a buzzword. Making disciples is a phrase that's often used, especially in evangelical churches, in churches that will take hills, that will take arrows, take bullets, so to speak, over the doctrine of inerrancy, that we believe that the Bible is without error in the original manuscripts, that it's plenary, verbal inspiration, every word inspired, every word is there uh, intentionally by God. And so churches believe that the Bible is the word of God. It's the inspired word of God, not like a Ernest Hemingway book is inspired. We don't mean it that way, that I was inspired and I wrote a poem. No, not that way. We mean that it was God breathed, that every word was given by God. And think of it this way, like a ship on the ocean, a a sailing ship on the ocean where it takes two things in order to move that ship. It takes the ship having sails, but that ship without wind is going nowhere. It takes the ship with sails and the wind to move that ship through the ocean. In the same way, Theonoustos, every word breathed, that's the Greek word that's used there, every word breathed, that the word of God is breathed out from God, is in the same situation that God carried along the human writers by the Holy Spirit and together, not circumventing their personalities, but actually using their personalities, that's the humility of God, that he would use the personalities of the writers to bring about the exact intention of what he wanted to say, how he wanted to say it, so that the product at the end result is an every word inspired book or 66 books that are breathed out by God with human intervention. I don't understand it any more than you do if you're honest. The humility of God is that he would use, not circumvent, human authors to accomplish his purpose. And you know what? He does that in your life and mine as well. He uses you and me to accomplish his kingdom agenda. So the idea of being blameless and righteous is walking with God, fearing God, revering God, having all of your life revolve around God, waiting for, looking for, watching for God's movement so that you can adjust your life to his movement. See, the idea is that many churches talk about discipleship at a 50,000-foot view. 
And what I want to do is what the Bible does. I want to talk about it from street level. It's very easy to throw out the word, the buzzword, discipleship. Very easy to say, make disciples. That's the Great Commission, right? Go into all the world, Matthew 28, and make disciples of all nations. But see, you can talk about it here at a 50,000 foot level, which I think is what we've been doing in the United States for far too long. I think that's part of the reason why our nation is in the situation that it's in. What we need to do is bring it down to street level where you can wrap your head around, I can wrap my head around, where we can wrap our heads around what does it look like for me to be a blameless and righteous person walking with God, looking for the consolation of God's kingdom agenda and fearing and reverencing God. Well, to help us out, I brought something uh, with me today. I brought a recurve bow and an arrow. And here on the podium, for those of you, maybe you're listening by radio or podcast here, I have a nice target here that I'd like to hit today. So I'm going to take this recurve bow with this arrow, and I'm going to stand just a little bit back, and I'm going to try to hit that target. How many of you think that I can hit that target? Quite a few hands go up, right? Now, suppose I say, well, before I do that, I'm going to spin around three times close my eyes and then hit that target. How many of you think that I'd be able to hit that target then? Well, suppose I told you to help out with this endeavor that I actually brought with me today a blindfold. And I'm going to do exactly that. I'm going to spin around three times with this blindfold and this recurve bow, and I'm going to face it here so I know that I'm facing the target right now, okay? I know that I'm facing the target. And I'm going to spin around three times one, two, three. <laughs> and now I'm going to hit that target. What happened to your faith? What happened to your devotion? <laughs> you know, I'm afraid that that's the exact same way that we're approaching discipleship when it comes to the body of Christ. It is impossible to hit a target that you can't even see. Nearly impossible. You need a whole lot of divine intervention to hit a target the way I might try to hit a target if I were wearing a blindfold trying to hit it. You know, in the same way, in your life and in mine, it's not possible to live a blameless, righteous life that's looking for God, that fears God, that respects God, that has all of your life revolving around it unless we bring it from the 50,000-foot level to a street-side level. And the truth of the matter is that the Bible actually has quite a bit to say about what a blameless, righteous life before God looks like. Look with me at Titus chapter 1. In Titus chapter 1, verse 5, this is the Apostle Paul who was the author who wrote more of the New Testament than any of the other New Testament writers, the Apostle Paul. And this is a book of the Bible breathed out by God, God working through his personality to write these words of scripture, and this is what he says in verse five, Titus chapter one, verse five. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I've directed you. Now this is where most of us mistakenly check out and think, well, I'm not an elder, I'm not going to be an elder, so this doesn't really apply to me. This has, for men, this has about as much significance as 
guidelines and suggestions and commands for a woman and a wife. This is where you just want to check out and say, well, this doesn't have to deal with me, has to deal with women. And ladies, this is the kind of a passage where you might look at those qualifications for a husband and the treatment of a husband toward you as the wife, and you might say, well, that's for him to work out between him and God. I wish he would work it out between him and God, but it really doesn't apply to me. And this is where we all make a mistake because we don't understand what a disciple looks like. And if you don't understand what a disciple looks like, you don't understand the whole idea of the Great Commission, and you will not understand this truth that it's time for you to hit the bullseye. It's time for you to hit the bullseye. And here is the bullseye. Here's what a disciple looks like. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, this is a great translation here. If anyone is, you see those words in the original Greek language, if anyone is. And so this is a byproduct of something being the reality in somebody's life. Find the people who are like this and they are your elders. Find the people who are spiritually mature and they are your elders because an elder is supposed to be an example of what a mature disciple of Jesus Christ looks like. Many times in many churches around the world, the wrong criteria are being used when it comes to an appointment of an elder because it's only looked at from an office level, from a positional level, instead of a discipleship issue. And if we were to read the Bible the way we should be reading it in the Bible, we would understand those key verses that are at the beginning of verse six, if anyone is above reproach. That sets the stage for everything else that follows. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, a successful businessman, a very wealthy person, popular in his neighborhood, very good looking and attractive. We laugh, but why are those often the criteria that we use when this is not so much a passage that has to deal with the appointment of an elder as a byproduct of choosing the people, recognizing the people who are mature followers of Jesus Christ, who are disciples? And what needs to happen in many churches, in our individual lives, is in order for us to hit the bullseye, we need to actually get a street view level of what maturity in Jesus Christ looks like. What does a disciple look like? It's right here. If anyone is above reproach, by the way, another word for above reproach is blameless. Not sinless. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, that's a one woman man whose eyes and heart don't wander, Keeping in mind that Paul was a single man and an apostle. So if he could be an apostle, which if we want to talk about rank and authority, an apostle trumps elder. In your card games that you play, apostle trumps elder, okay? Paul was a single man. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, a one-woman man, his eyes and heart are faithfully devoted to his wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Seems like what he's pointing to here is that his children, 
as much as children can, have lifestyles that are not embarrassing to the Lord. For an overseer, another word that's used for elder, as God's steward must be above reproach. Notice it doesn't say should be above reproach. He must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Don't make the mistake of thinking that we've got to be so milk toast for Jesus that there are no opportunities for us to have to look somebody in the eye and say, brother or sister, you're wrong. Paul did that in the book of Galatians to another apostle. We have apostle versus apostle where he had to rebuke Peter because he was clearly in the wrong. And again, if you're going to be a person who's walking with God, there are going to come opportunities where you have to lovingly speak the truth in love. You have to do that. So here we get an understanding that this is no indication at all whatsoever that Paul is speaking allegorically or with symbolism here. He's actually going through great detail to help us understand what it looks like to be above reproach, what it looks like to live a blameless, righteous life, to fear God, to walk with him. You see, by this time, we have to understand here, okay? Let's understand this for a moment. Who is the writer of the book of Titus? It's the Apostle Paul. Well, we in the church, we always hear the word Apostle Paul, but if it was in the first century, we would also know that Paul was a recovering Pharisee. He was a recovering Pharisee who had been called to be an apostle. As a Pharisee, he would have been well-versed in the Old Testament law, well-versed in the interpretation of the Old Testament law, and very well-versed in the passages of Scripture that we looked at even briefly today with Job or with Noah and others that we see in the Scriptures The idea of what it would mean to live a blameless and a righteous life would have been very thoroughly developed by the time Paul was on the scene. So Paul is taking what would otherwise be a 50,000-foot view of discipleship, and he's bringing it down. He's landing that plane for you and for me so that we know what the bullseye is. We know what we should be aiming for. What does a blameless, righteous, above reproach life look like? It looks like these things. And Paul's not even being exhaustive here. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3 as we get a greater understanding from 1 Timothy chapter 3. Here's an instance where Paul is again helping us understand the qualifications for an elder, qualifications for a deacon, and he's, he's using these words to describe spiritual maturity, what a mature follower of Jesus Christ looks like, not just in one book, the book of Titus, but we see him also doing it in the book of First Timothy in chapter 3. And then we see Peter doing it as well in his epistle, in the epistle of First Peter where he lays out qualifications for elders. And here, Paul expands on this and talks about deacons. The idea is not that we're just trying to look for men who will qualify, for people who will qualify to fill the office of elder and the office of deacon, 
Joseph of Arimathea was a blameless, righteous man who would have been characterized by these types of things. This was the common understanding in the first century of what blamelessness, what a righteous lifestyle looked like. What did it look like? What does it look like to be a man or to be a woman who is walking with God? What does it look like for you to be a woman, for you to be a man, for you to be a boy or a girl who is walking with God, who fears God, who respects God? Well, here it is. This is the demystification of what would otherwise be very mystical to us. And it still is mystical to us in the church because we all know that we're supposed to be disciples if we're around for any length of time. You'll hear all kinds of churches talk about making disciples and all we often end up doing is creating human doings. We think that if we have all of these programs, programs equal discipleship. No, the programs need to be designed to raise up men, women, boys, and girls who have the specific character traits of a mature follower of Jesus Christ. And when somebody becomes a mature follower of Jesus Christ, they become the elders, and or the deacons. It's not rocket science. What we need to do is bring it from way up here to right down here so that we look at living a blameless life, living a righteous life, living a life that walks with God, living a life that respects God and fears God, living a life that looks for God's movement and how I can move with God. We need to bring that down to a very practical level. And if you haven't noticed, the Bible is the most practical of all books you could ever read. It takes things that otherwise would be way up here and hard to understand and difficult to comprehend and nebulous. I can't get my head wrapped around that. And it helps even somebody like me wrap my head around something that would otherwise be at a 50,000 foot level. God's call on your life as a follower of Jesus Christ is that you really follow him, that you are a disciple who makes disciples. And you've got to have a life that is characterized by spiritual maturity. So in 1 Timothy chapter 3, here's what Paul says. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, used synonymously with elder, he desires a noble task. It's an honorable thing, not dishonorable. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Now, if that's as far as Paul went, we'd all be still circulating. We'd be, we'd be waiting for the right of way to land that plane. We'd still be at a 50,000 foot level and that wouldn't do us very much good at all. But then Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, helps us understand what does a life that is above reproach look like. And then with no allegory, with no symbolism, but with great accuracy and great detail, he lists what it looks like. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, a successful business person with a super hot wife. If he's good looking himself, that would be awesome. Must be popular. See how ridiculous it is when we read the reversed standard version? This is why the Bible is so important to read and to put into action. Because it changes our thoughts and our perspectives and our ways. I don't know about you, but 
I tend to go askew. Start off with the compass. I took my brothers on a camping trip many years ago, convinced my younger brother to go on a camping trip. He did not want to sleep in a tent, in a sleeping bag, on what ended up being the hottest weekend in the whole summer. It was a July weekend. But I convinced my younger brother because my older brother and I had had such successful times going out and hiking and camping. And I, first mistake, had the compass. And it was only a few hours from here. It was only about a one to two mile hike that we were supposed to take, but 14 miles later, I was way off course. And you know, that's true in your life and in mine when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, since a church is simply the accumulation of all the people, churches often will get way off track in terms of understanding what is a disciple? What is a disciple supposed to look like? How do I know if somebody's blameless, if they're righteous, if they're walking with God, if they respect God, if they fear God? How do I know whether or not somebody is really walking with Jesus? Those who are really walking with Jesus and only those who are really walking with Jesus qualify to be a candidate for elder and deacon because they are the ones who other people in the church are supposed to be able to look at and say, I can follow, insert the name, as they follow Jesus Christ. An elder and a deacon is supposed to be, humanly speaking, the example that we can hold up and say, follow this person because they're really following Jesus Christ. Now let's look here at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. And that doesn't mean that you've got to come up on a platform. It just means that you're able to convey truths that you know are true in the scripture. You're able to convey them in your own way to other people. And this is particular to elders. Deacons don't have this particular qualification because the roles are different. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He should manage his own household well. No, it doesn't say that. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. Reputation outside the church, very important. We all know that there are people within the church who wear a church face. Who they are at church is very different than who they are on Monday morning at work. And so this idea is presented here in scriptures must be well thought of by outsiders, not just insiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise, in a similar way, must be dignified, not double-tongued, meaning two-faced. Another way of putting that. We might look at that that way today. Not addicted to much wine. Notice he doesn't say you can't have a glass of wine. He says not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They should hold to the mystery of the faith. It doesn't say that. They must hold to the mystery of the faith, must be a person of the book. 
with a clear conscience, the book being the Bible. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in a few things. No, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. That's the idea, again, of being a one-woman man, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. What needs to happen in your life and in my life is to take this understanding, this 50,000 foot view of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to land that plane and to begin to look at it from street level. Your life must have in a growing way these traits that come as a byproduct of somebody who is walking with God, who respects God, who fears God, who is looking for the movement of God so that they can adjust their life. This is what it means to live a blameless and a righteous life. This is what it means to be a blameless and a righteous person. And if you're not looking to be a blameless or a righteous person, it could be that you've lost your way or maybe you never found your way in the first place. Discipleship is not something we talk about up here at a 50,000 foot level. We need to talk about it from a street level. You need to talk about it with your spouse. You need to have discussions about it with your children. And every program in a church and every program in your life should be measured by whether or not and to what degree it helps you and helps others become a blameless righteous person looking for the movement of God, walking with God, and adjusting your life. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit couragematters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.